Good morning. A uh, couple announcements. Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of speaking at the Arlington SDA Church in Arlington, Texas, and it was really fun. We had a lot of people who are online followers come up and got to meet them, and and uh, then we had many who were uh, not familiar with, with our, our teachings, and they have become very uh, receptive. It was a very positive experience. We gave a lot of DVDs and other materials away. And I want to especially thank Alan Weber and Alice Witten, who were integral in helping organize and bring that event about. But... In the aftermath, on a sadder note, one of the people I met there, Heidi Metcalf, sent me an email last night. I want to read her email. My best friend Amber lost 10 of her family members, the Holcomb family, in the tragic church shooting last Sunday. Will you please pray and request ongoing prayer during our Bible study class tomorrow? In addition, I always like to offer up a praise with every prayer request. Through this awful tragedy, we are already seeing God's hand performing miracles. Brian and Carla, Amber's aunt and uncle who died in the shooting, loved the Lord and lived for him and everything they did. Their oldest son, Scott, did not believe in God and did not have a relationship with him, which is why he was not in church with the rest of the family on that fateful day. Through this tragedy of loss and losing his family, he said he has never seen so much love from others and now professes that Jesus is Lord. And though losing his entire family, he now sees. It has been a very emotional week. In talking with Amber's grandfather, he said the following, I've read the book. I know the story, and I know how it ends, and therefore I'm okay. I also asked Amber the following question. If your family knew that by losing their life, Scott would come to know his Savior, and one day they would all be reunited in heaven together, would they have given their lives so that he could know his heavenly Father? She said, yes, 100%, no doubt about it. We held each other and thanked our Father who is always working for our good and asked him to hasten the day of his return. Thank you again for your beautiful message of God who is love. The whole world needs to hear this message, and I have faith they will soon. Your sister in Christ, Heidi. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that your love overrules evil and that at the end of the book, all the, the hurts and the pains are taken away and every tear is wiped away and, and you bring us all back to a kingdom of perfect peace and, and joy and love and health where there'll be no more death and no more sorrow. Lord, we want to remember Amber's family and Amber and lift, lift her up and, and all those whose families and have been touched by this tragedy in Texas, that you will move your spirit upon the hearts and and work out good from this evil, that people will see your love through this this tragedy and know that you are the God who who is love and will bring things and restore things back to rightness again. Be with us today as we study your word, that we will come to see the truth of your character more clearly, we pray in your holy name. Amen. And another announcement I would like to tell you about. Um, this past Wednesday, November 8, I was privileged to be one of a select few of mental health leaders who was invited to the White House to meet with uh, Donald Trump's staff on a variety of uh, mental health issues, opioid addiction, faith-based initiatives. Other attendees included um, Tim Clinton, who's president of the American Association of Christian Counselors, who helped organize the event. Um, James Dobson, if you know, familiar with him, who was advocating for the importance of family health in, in mental health. 
uh, Dr. Daniel Amen, who advocated for education, young, educating young people on brain health. Uh, Dr. Paul Meyer, Carolyn Leaf, Henry Cloud, and others were amongst the group. We had an opportunity to, uh, to dialogue with these thought leaders, including um, Pastor Paula White, who is the president's pastor and family friend. And she was also integral in organizing this event and, and met with various uh, White House staffers, including Kellyanne Conway. Uh, the attendees were able to provide uh, direct feedback and also um, hear what the president's initiatives are for mental health in the community. Uh, there's, um, we were um, told by multiple staffers uh, the president's deep commitment to Christian principles and many specific changes he's making to improve mental health in America. Specifically, he's directed the Department of, of Health and Human Services to develop programs to address the opioid crisis, to include expanded treatment and expanded court-ordered treatment and drug courts to divert away from incarceration and into rehabilitation, uh, improved communication with families uh, and faith-based programs. Specifically, the uh, about late October, the Office of Civil Rights put out guidance persons who end up in the emergency room with an opioid overdose that confidentiality rules do not prevent the hospital from contacting their family, which is what's been happening. If somebody overdoses and ends up in the emergency room, they treat the overdose, but then the family is never told that they have a problem with the family. And so these people go back out and they don't get the help and support to get into recovery. And so they've changed those rules that it won't be a violation of confidentiality to notify the family if somebody ends up in the emergency room from an opioid overdose. Um, They're focusing on early detection and treatment of serious mental health problems, in other words, looking for identification and intervention in adolescence, developing crisis intervention programs uh, to provide behavioral health services in the community, in the homes in the community, rather than than taking them out of their, their support systems and putting them in hospitals, if possible, integrating and ensuring that those with mental health problems get good physical health care, which they often don't get, enforcing mental health parity laws so that access won't be diminished, uh, they're also taking an initiative to train primary care doctors to ask about suicide because if you know suicide rates have been going up in this country and the data shows that most people who commit suicide visit a primary care doctor within the few months before they commit suicide yet they are rarely asked about suicide so there's an initiative to train primary care doctors to ask pretty much on every visit do a screening on suicidality. They also have initiated the Office of Innovation which has taken up the task of reforming the prison systems in America from merely incarceration and punishment to rehabilitation and reintegration into society. Looking at uh, novel ways to help do that, including faith-based programs, which have high success of reintegration with low recidivism rates, but also looking at reducing traumatic brain injury in adolescents and young people because the prison population have an overrepresented number of persons who have a history of traumatic brain injury. And so if we can potentially reduce TBIs in young people, you might, we might be able to reduce later criminality and behavior. So they're looking at a lot of really neat things, and uh, I was very encouraged at the meeting. And it was supposedly the first of several more to come. So I thought I'd bring you up to date on that. So as we go to our lesson, we are doing uh, lesson number seven, excuse me, lesson number eight on Romans 7, the man who, uh, entitled, Who is the Man of Romans 7? As you read the, as we read the first paragraph, it says, it says, few chapters in the Bible have created more controversy than Romans 7. Concerning this issue, uh, the issues involved, the Bible commentary says, 
the meaning of Romans 7, 14-25 has been one of the most discussed problems in the whole epistle. The main question has been as to whether the description of such intense moral struggle could be autobiographical, and if so, whether the passage refers to Paul's experience before or after his conversion. That Paul is speaking of his own personal struggle is seen... Uh, with sin seems apparent from the simplest meaning of the words. It is surely also true that he is describing a conflict that is more or less experienced by every soul confronted by the awakening of the spiritual claims of God's holy law. So as you, you've read Romans 7. Have you ever wondered, is this talking about somebody before conversion or after conversion? Or have you always thought you kind of understood that pretty clearly? If you remember Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing the things I do. That's not what I really intended and so forth, that conflict, that struggle. Well, do you think if you approach Romans 7, what's there with a certain assumption before you get there, it'll influence how you understand it? And do you know that one of the things we're always trying to challenge people is, what's the law lens you're looking through? The last paragraph says this words. Whatever position one takes... What's important is that Jesus' righteousness covers us and that in his righteousness we stand perfect before God, who promises to sanctify us, to give us victory over sin, and to conform us to the image of his Son. So what does it mean to be covered by the robe of his righteousness? Or, let's... It's what they said. Why does the covering... Why does covering us with the righteousness of Christ cause us to stand perfect before God? That's what they say. The righteousness, which causes us to stand perfect before God. Does the description above, as you read what was in the paragraph, I'll read it again to you. Uh, in, in his righteousness we stand perfect before God, who promises to sanctify us. Does that description sound like we are standing perfect before God before we're actually perfect before God? Yes. Why would we need sanctification if we're already perfect before God? We're going to stand perfect before God, but then he's going to sanctify us. So that means we're actually not perfect before God, but we're being caused to, to stand perfect before God. It's evangelical. Uh, yeah. What kind of trick is going on if we are somehow able to get God to believe that we are now perfect before him, even though we're not yet perfect? And now that you've, you, you've said that I'm perfect, Lord, I need you to actually sanctify me and make me perfect, but you've already said I'm perfect. Do we see any tension here? What kind of God would this be that we have to play these kind of tricks with? Yes? No, he knows our heart. He knows what our goal is, and we're going to fall. So evidently here he doesn't, because, he, because he, we're declared to be perfect, but yet we're not. So if he knows our heart and we're not perfect, then would he actually declare that we're perfect if we're not perfect? No. So this is classic. He's a liar. Yeah, it would make him out to be telling, perpetrating a fraud, Yes. Back on page 36 of the lesson, let me clarify this, because it says in on the page 62 of the steps of Christ, it says, Christ's character stands in place of your character, and you are accepted before God just as if you had not seen it. Just keep that question in mind as we continue to look at a little bit more evidence here, okay? Because I think it becomes self-answered here in just a moment. This confusing description, which is written for the purpose, this was written to bring hope. That's what it was written. If you read it, it was to bring hope. Good news. You'll stand, be declared, and then he'll sanctify you. Yet instead causes doubts. It makes you believe that you have to have something cover you when the Father looks at you, because if, if it's not covering you, then you really can't have confidence in him. So it's designed to bring hope, but yet it sows seeds of doubt at the same time. 
Here's one view from the book, and I think this may answer your question. The book Christ Object Lessons and uh, about what this means about the covering of the robe of righteousness. See if you agree with it or do you have a different view that you think is better. The robe woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human devising. What would that mean? Not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity brought out a perfect character. Pause on that one. In his humanity. Now, why would Christ have to work out a perfect human character? Why? Why would that be needed? Can, can't God create sinless beings? Yes, he has. He's, yeah, Adam and Eve were sinless. That's all he creates. But can God create perfect character? Why not? Character requires the exercise of choice of the sentient being. It's developed by choice. Adam and Eve and Eden in sinlessness had the ability to create their own perfect characters. They could have done it by rejecting the lies, rejecting the temptation, solidifying their hearts in loyalty to God. They could have developed a perfect character. They were capable. After sin, though, is any other human being with our carnal natures capable of doing that? No, we're not. So Christ had to come to be the second Adam to do for us what we could not do, develop a perfect character. And this character he offers to impart to us When we submit ourselves to Christ, this goes to, I think, the question you were reading a moment ago. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. Have you had the experience of having your heart come into unity with his heart? The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The Bible says we get the mind of Christ, doesn't it? The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, we bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Then, when? Then, according to this author, as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. Do you like this view? Do you agree with this view? Do you think, no, 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 that's not how it happens? If you like this view, when does the Lord see the righteousness, the robe of Christ's righteousness? When does he see it? Before or after we've actually had a change of heart? After. That's not what was subtly described here. It's not a covering over of a rebellious, sin-filled heart. It is a recreation. And the metaphors of Scripture, I'll write my law in your hearts and minds. We get the mind of Christ. We're reborn. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is put in. A circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. All the metaphors of Scripture are trying to lead us to understand that we cannot do for ourselves. We can trust Jesus. Open the heart and trust. The Spirit takes the character of Christ. So Paul says, it's no longer I that live, but... Christ lives in me. We get new motives, new thoughts, new desires. Our thoughts are brought into captivity. This is what it means to be covered. It's not a covering over. It's not what I call the candy-coated rotten apple theory. Take a rotten apple, cover it with candy, and you've co- but it's still rotten in its core. No, we are not still rotten in our cores. We get new hearts, new motives, new desires. We're reborn. We're regenerated. We get a new identity in Christ. What would it mean that if we teach people the metaphor 
This metaphor of the robe of righteousness is a declaration of being seen as perfect before we are actually healed within. What would that mean? What would be the consequence of teaching people that the robe of righteousness means that God declares you to be righteous before there's any renewal of heart, before there's any transformation within? What would be the consequence of teaching that? What would, it, what, what would it, the conclusions of that be? You need to change your heart. It means we're cheating people. We're giving them a theology that is designed to bring security as they stand before the sovereign magistrate so that I don't have to worry about what he'll see. He won't see the sin. He won't see the wickedness. It means I don't have to worry about punishment. I don't worry about consequence. I'm secure in my Savior who covers me, but I haven't had a heart change. I haven't been renewed. I don't get new motives. My thoughts aren't changed. It cheats people out of victorious living. Form of godliness, but no power. Do you notice in the book description here that I read about what it actually means? There was nothing legal going on there. There's no legal training. It was all transformational, regenerational renewal. Nothing legal. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Romans 7, 1 through 6. I'm going to read these verses out of the NIV. And then we'll unpack what they mean. Do you know, excuse me, do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to men who know the law. The law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now... By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way, in the new way of the Spirit, and not the old way of the written code. Does that make plain sense to everybody? First question, why does Paul use a legal analogy here? And he does, he uses a law analogy. Why does he use the law? And notice it's an analogy. It's a metaphor. Metaphors are not reality. They're trying to lead you to a larger reality. But why does he use the legal one here? He's speaking to a group that is ardent law keepers. There you go. He's talking to people who think through law. It's like going to, to, to uh, some law school and talking to a bunch of lawyers. Okay, so w- when I was in the military, I used to use military metaphors all the time. When I was talking to soldiers, I'd use army metaphors all the time for them. Why? Because that's their, that's their frame of reference. And so he's using a frame of reference that his audience can relate to. And, and this is important recognition because many people will use policy. See, it's legal. He's using legal. It's legal. No, it's not. He's talking to a group of people who live in a legal world. So he's trying to reach them in their world. What, what is the point of this, these, these verses I just read? What's the core point? And I, I think this is the core point. came out of the passage, quoting the scripture. By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. So the question is, what bound us? Somebody say sin, okay. Selfishness, fear, survival drive, carnal natures, lies we believe, guilt and shame, these things are what bind us. So I'll read to you just verses 4 through 6 from the remedy and see what you think. And see if you agree with it or not. Remember, we just read that from the NIV. 
And uh, we'll see what it says out of the, out of the remedy. Therefore, your selfish, your selfish, fear-ridden heart died when you accepted the truth revealed by Christ's death. And you received a new heart from him who was raised from the dead in order that you might grow in character to be like Jesus and live to honor God. For when we were controlled by the infection of fear and selfishness, which resulted from distrust, the destructive passions revealed by the law were ravaging our bodies. We were terminally ill and spreading death wherever we went. But now, as we die to the distrust, fear, and selfishness that once bound us, the law no longer diagnoses us as infected and terminal. In fact, the law now confirms that we have a new heart, not by observing rules, but created within by the Spirit. We are now healthy and loving like Jesus. It seems to me that with that marriage analogy, it's talking about a contract and the thinking that if you keep the Jewish law, then you have fulfilled the contract. And he's saying that you can't fulfill that contract. And, and so think about a marriage that you keep because you're under contractual obligation to do so. Mm-hmm. You've made a contract with your husband. Mm-hmm. It's a legal binding contract. You have certain duties and you're under obligation to carry them out. Describe that marriage for me. <laughs> well, yeah, but but is there is there any character growth in that marriage? Does love and trust grow in a marriage like that? So the contract is valid in that you understand what your obligations are. It doesn't take into account the emotional component. I wasn't even speaking primarily uh, emotional. When you talk about keeping God's law, you talk about knowing what your obligations are. And what what are those obligations? To love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole law, and we aren't able to... I'm with you. I love it. (laughs) And can you command it? No. If we can't command it, then why did he? He invited us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in need of Christ. Okay, so it was it was not what is the greatest commandment, it's what is the greatest suggestion. No. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and, no. <laughs> and your neighbor as yourself. It's an opportunity to, to see what the standard is. And why is it the standard? Why is what the standard? Love. Why is love the standard? Because that's the character of God. It, that's true, it is the character of God, so why does that make it the standard? You're right. I'm not, I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I want us to go through a, a thought progression here. Because we are invited to have the mind of Christ and to be like Why? Him. For what purpose? What, what, what happens if we don't? That's how we're made. Ah, made for, for? That's how we're constructed. That's how we're built. That's how we're designed. In other words, this is the protocol for life. And so he's inviting us to life. He's inviting us for health. He's inviting us for... Like a blueprint. It tells us what an obedient person, a good person looks like. The law is good. I would actually say it the other way. Okay. The law doesn't tell you what health looks like. The law exposes what disease looks like. Okay. See, we, for instance, you've heard the Ten Commandments are a transcript of God's character. You ever heard that? Which, and we just said the law is a transcript of God's character, or it's an expression of God, it's, it's so forth. We can take some of your blood cells, and we can run them through a lab, and we can get your DNA sequence. We can do that now. And that DNA sequence we can put on paper 
and that is a transcript of you. And it's only you. No other person has that transcript. By studying the transcript, do we actually know you? Do we know your love? Or hatred? Whatever is in your heart. Do we know your character? disease, perhaps. Yes, okay. But you can't know God by studying the law. The Ten Commandments are a distillation of God's character. It tells us certain things about Him. We can know certain things about you. But I can't know you from studying your trench. I don't know the sound of your laugh. I don't know what, what you find humorous. I don't know what you despise. I don't know you at all by studying the transcript. This is why many people are, who are avid law keepers are the ones who killed Christ. They studied the law. Christ referred to them all the time. Lawyers. The Bible scholars and lawyers. The Pharisees. They were the law keepers. They were the keepers of the law, in fact. So yes, um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is suggest that the law has a purpose. The written law God gave was for a purpose. Its primary purpose was not to reveal himself to us. Its primary purpose was to reveal that we were sick in need of healing. By contrasting the standard of what love looks like in a codified form constructed for the need of sinful humankind. Let's go back to the analogy of marriage then. So the contract tells when something is wrong with the marriage, but not what is right in marriage. That's true. You, people can keep all the legal requirements of a marriage contract and have a very dysfunctional and destructive marriage, but they're keeping all the legal requirements. I see the law more as it's like a owner's manual to an automobile. When we say the law, we're speaking now the written law. We're not speaking the, the laws upon which life are built. Right. Well, that's what this verse is talking about, the written law, isn't it? That's right. That's right. So I'm just clarifying. He says it. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't see it as, as a character of God. It's just an owner's manual how we can better live. Okay. Let's keep unpacking. I think this was very helpful. Thank you for that. I, I, really, I really enjoyed that. Thank you. <laughs> yes. The problem with that is you go back to the general health laws. And if you exercise but do not enjoy it, your heart benefits do not are not reaped. That's correct. You are actually doing damage to your physical being. That's correct. It's not been my experience. When I exercise and hate it, I still feel better afterward. <laughs> I have thought about the emotion. And the well, so, so she's getting endorphins. I can tell you, I can tell you uh, the studies show there's about 10% of people who exercise that get worse cholesterol and worse inflammatory cascades, don't get the physical health benefits. But that's 10%. Uh, and when they look at that, it's because they're doing exercises they don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. If they were to exercise in an, in an exercise that they enjoy, they don't get those negative consequences. So there are people who enjoy exercise? Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 And, and in fact, and in fact... This is what I tell my patients. Don't, don't exercise for the purpose of exercise. Exercise should be a byproduct of another activity. So if you're playing basketball, you're playing tennis, you're playing racquetball, you are, are having a walk with your husband and you're having conversations, your, your exercise is a byproduct of another activity that you enjoy and therefore you don't even notice the fact you're exercising. That's enjoyable exercise. To get on a treadmill and think, okay, slogging it out for 15 minutes. If you want to see about the exercise that doesn't bring health, think about the POW who is 
escapes the prison camp and is running out through the woods for, for, for a day and a half uh, with extreme exercise, being chased by people who are trying to kill him. Okay? He's not going to have good cardiovascular health from that type of exercise. The stress level's too high. Too many catecholamines and stuff going on. Okay? So if you have a mental stress, um, yes? Treadmills, yes, they can if you have a good mental, mental attitude toward it. Yes. All right, let's move on. So the first paragraph states, the Jews had difficulty grasping the fact that this system given to them of God should end with the coming of the Messiah. This is what Paul was dealing with. The Jewish believers still not ready to abandon what had been such an important part of their lives. So, question. Did the system of animal sacrifice, circumcision of the body, feast days, provide salvation? No. 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 Did a person in Old Testament times have to participate in that system in order to be saved? No. Naaman? Shunammite woman, Nebuchadnezzar, Good Samaritan, the woman at the well. Um, there's many other examples of people experiencing salvation, never participated in that system. Why were the Jews not ready to abandon the system that was such a part of their lives? Why were they not ready to abandon it if it didn't provide salvation and it didn't? Thank you. Was it because they ascribed a value to the system that the system did not actually possess? They ascribed a value. This, this, this is valuable to us because, and they in their minds thought it was doing something it didn't actually do. Is that possible? What about those who hold today to the penal legal theology? Do they have a difficult time letting it go? Could it be that they're ascribing a value to it it doesn't actually possess? I think so. Last paragraph states, again, given all else that Paul and the Bible say about obedience to the Ten Commandments, it doesn't make sense to assert here that Paul was telling the Jewish believers that the Ten Commandments were no longer binding. Those who use these texts to try and make the point that the moral law was done away with really don't want to make that point anyway. What they really want to do is say that the seventh-day Sabbath is gone or the re- not the rest of the law. To interpret Romans 7, 4, and 5 as teaching that the fourth commandment had been abolished or superseded or replaced with Sunday is to give them the meaning that the words were never intended to have. So let me ask you this question. When you think of the Sabbath, what law lens do you look through? If you present it as an arbitrary test of obedience, that God declared this day to be holy and he hasn't decreed any other day holy until he decrees another day holy, then we're breaking the law if we don't keep the law. If we do that, what type of law are we promoting? Enforced. Imposed, human-type law. We're making the Sabbath function like human laws. God made a, made a declaration. He made a... Let me ask you this. What is the importance of the Bible Sabbath? Is it a test of obedience or is it a gift to humankind of some kind? Some time of a gift. When Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay, so what was its purpose? What does the Sabbath actually do? How is it that the Sabbath is holy? What makes the Sabbath holy? Promotes a relationship. Think about this for now. How did the Sabbath, as a day, become a day of rest? Or how did the Sabbath, as a day of rest, come to exist? How did that happen? God made it holy. Came at the end of the week of creation. It was constructed, designed, built, created that way. 
Notice that. What was associated with the creation of the Sabbath day? Was there anything going on? Okay, so that was, that was what was happening in the universe that week. There was a rebellion ongoing in the universe. What kind of rebellion? Was it a rebellion of physical might? How, how, how does anybody think that a created being, even an angelic being, could actually engage in a physical war with God? No. <laughs> think it through. No, he's the infinite creator of everything. It's like, you're gone. Okay. No, this was not a physical war. And in fact, in Revelation, it talks about there was war in heaven. The word used there is polemic, or pol- polemo, where from we get polemic, which means it's a war of words, a war of ideas. Satan is the father of lies. Okay, so it's a war over who can you trust. This kind of war. And it began in heaven with angels. And, and the angels now have these distorted views of God being presented by Lucifer. And God begins to create. Let there be light, let the firmament come. Let us make man in our image. Lucifer is suggesting some things. Now, what do we learn day one through six of creation week about God? He's a creator. And what do you need to create? Power. Think about the power that was displayed. If we can take just a few grams of matter, and we take that matter, we turn it into energy, that's what we call a nuclear explosion, with just a few grams. How much energy is in a few? How much energy did it take to make this whole planet? To make our sun, to make our solar system. I mean, we cannot get, it's beyond our capacity to understand the amount of power that was displayed that week. So day one through six of creation week, we learn God is powerful. But do you know the character of the one who wields power day one through six? What did we learn on day seven? What did God do with power on day seven? Did he continue using power or did he stop using power? He stepped back. He said, universe, you've heard the allegations, you've seen the evidence we've given. Now, universe, take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. No coercion, no pressure, no threat. I rest. Notice, God rested. What did he rest? He rests from giving evidence. He left his intelligent beings free to think. Why? Because God is love. Love only exists in atmosphere of freedom. If God were to threaten and coerce, you better get in line or else I'll kill you. Look, I just, uh, just showed you what I can do. I can replace you with more intelligent beings, so you better bow the knee. Love is destroyed. He doesn't do that. It's just the opposite. He steps back and says, think it through for yourself. Come to your own conclusion. No pressure, no coercion. So what is the importance of the Sabbath? It was given to man. Man was not given to the Sabbath. So what was it given to man for? I would suggest it's a piece of evidence. An evidence that happens every week of your entire life. An evidence that circles around over and over again. This is why we are told to remember Remember the Sabbath. Why? Because it's an evidence of creation, which is an evidence of design law, which stands as a symbolic representation of, I run my universe on the design laws. I'm not a dictator. I don't make up rules and then enforce them with threats. Now, how did Sunday become an official day of worship? How did it become an official day of worship? There's a history. It's well known. It's well documented. Church committee declared. By legislative action. What kind of law is that? That's imposed law. So the two days of worship stand as evidence of two methods of governing. Design law versus imposed law. The day that, Notice, the days themselves are not the methods. The days themselves are not the methods of governing. They're merely signs or evidences of the two methods. For instance, there's a flag back here. Everybody see the flag I'm pointing at over here? Okay, for those who can't see it, it's the flag of the United States. 
That flag is a sign or a symbol of the United States of America. Is that flag the United States of America? No, it's only a sign or a symbol. This day is a sign or a symbol. It's not the government of God. It's a sign or a symbol of a method, a design, a protocol. Can somebody actually go maybe in the military, and maybe we're in a war situation, can someone put on the military uniform of the United States and actually have the U.S. flag on their shoulder and be working for the enemy? Can somebody be keeping the Sabbath and working for the enemy? Yeah, absolutely. If we teach the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience, are we representing the truth about God's design law or are we teaching an imposed law? Thus, we're promoting the Sabbath as a mark of a beastly system of coercion, if we teach it that way. Can some people keep Sunday as a day of worship, yet present the God of love and the God of truth and his design laws and his methods of governing? Yes. Absolutely. C.S. Lewis taught this idea in his book, last book of the Chronicle of Narnia series, where a Calamarine uh, soldier named Emmeth has an encounter with Aslan. Emmeth was a worshiper of Tash his whole life. And here's the encounter. Emmeth speaking. I fell, I fell at his feet and, those, and thought, surely this is the hour of death, for the lion will know that I have served Tash all my days and not him. What was Aslan's response? Son, thou art welcome. But I said, alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but a servant of Tash. He answered, child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account a service done to me. I questioned the glorious one. Lord, If then is it then true that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled and said, It is false, not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. I take to me the service which thou hast done to him, for I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn, though he has not known it, and it is I who will reward him. And if a man who does cruelty in my name, and if any man do cruelty in my name, then, though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. Emmeth questioned once more. Lord, I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou should not have sought so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. Do you get what he's saying here? It's not about the labels you put on things. The Lord has prophesied in your name. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. As they're doing in the name of Jesus. Get thee hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Is it primarily about the day? Or is it about what the day represents being reproduced in the heart, mind, and character of the believers? Many Adventists are going to find themselves very shocked. In addition to the Sabbath being an evidence, and I think its primary purpose is an evidence, if, if God ran his universe as a dictator, there would have never been a Sabbath for us to think and, and, and consider. He wouldn't have stepped back and said, hey, I rest, think for yourself. It's an evidence of his designs and his methods and the freedoms that we have. But in addition to being an evidence of God's design law, how are, we, how are we to relate to it? According to Isaiah, the Sabbath is to be called a delight, a day of celebration, rejoicing, rest, and gladness. I put out that the Sabbath really is supposed to be a weekly, every week vacation 
from the stressors of the sinful world, to set aside the burdens, to unwind, to relax, to rejuvenate in a relationship with your God. That's what it's for. You can, like, you don't have to feel guilty if you don't uh, do the laundry or if you don't have, if you have homework, you can put it all aside and, and rest and all the stressors and work that you're under every week, you get to take a day off. But imagine if you went to your favorite beach resort to relax on vacation and once you arrived there, it was taken over by terrorists who held you there against your will. How relaxing and enjoyable would that vacation be? Same beach. Why is it no longer enjoyable? Because your freedom was just taken away. When we present the Sabbath as an arbitrary test of obedience, as a day of restriction of liberty, a day in which we can't do this and we can't do that, a day if you do the wrong thing, it will go against you in the heavenly courts, we misrepresent God's law, misrepresent His character, undermine trust, destroy the purpose of the Sabbath, And thus, we come to observe the day of the Lord that we crucify. And we want him off the cross by sunset so we can keep the day. So I would say the lesson is correct in that Paul was not doing away with the Ten Commandments. He was doing away with the legal understanding of sin and salvation and putting the commandments in their proper place as a diagnostic instrument. So if the Sabbath is not a day of rest, joy, rejuvenation, recovery... If the Sabbath is a day of fear, insecurity, worry about whether you did this or whether you did that, then the commandments are helpful to let you know there's more healing to happen in your heart. Have I upset anybody? (laughs) Monday's lesson. The lesson asks us, asks if the commandment, if commandment law was done away with at the cross. And I thought we'll go ahead and read Romans 7, 7 through 11. And I'm just going to read it out of the remedy this time. What shall we say then? Is the law evil and selfish because it increases the amount of evil and selfishness we see? Absolutely not. I would not have known what evil and selfishness looks like if it was not for the diagnostic efficacy of the law. I would not have realized that coveting was evil and selfish if the law didn't say don't covet. But selfishness taking advantage of the fact that the law is only a diagnostic instrument and not a remedy magnified every covetous desire within me. For apart from the diagnostic ability of the law, sin is unrecognizable. Once I thought I was healthy and free from the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness. But then the commandment examined me, exposed how utterly infected I was, and diagnosed me as terminal. I discovered that the very commandment given only as a diagno- to diagnose my condition, I had unwittingly attempted to use as a cure. And thus my condition only worsened. For selfishness, taking advantage of the fact that the commandment could only diagnose and not cure, deceived me into thinking that I could be cured by working to keep the commandments. But instead, my terminal state only worsened. What do you think? Do you think I have abused the passage, misread it, misunderstood it, um, put wrong meanings in there? It's okay if you you do. I'm not going to bite anybody. You know, one of our principles, everybody be fully persuaded. Or does that make sense to you? Do you see how if you're trying to, and I use this analogy sometimes, uh, back when I was in med school, I went to school in Memphis, they had an old hospital there, and, and as you walked into the lobby of the hospital, there's this giant seal on the floor, and on the seal it, it gave the name of the hospital, and it was a tuberculosis hospital. It was originally built as an old tuberculosis hospital. We don't have those anymore. But in the old days, they had a tuberculosis hospital because people had to be quarantined away from the rest of the population. If you had tuberculosis, it was very contagious. didn't have meds to treat it originally. And imagine if you were quarantined away. Remember the law is a 
quarantines us, protects us, okay? If we were quarantined away, and on the wall it said, you can't leave the hospital as long as you, or it may say this way, uh, those who leave the hospital, thou shalt not cough, thou shalt not have fever, thou shalt not spit up blood, thou shalt not have nausea. Okay, and it's true. All those who get cured, when they leave, they won't be doing those things. They won't do them. But imagine if we misunderstood that that is a description. Diagnosing, if you have all those things, it's an evidence that you're sick, and we need a cure to remedy us. And if you get the remedy, you won't have those things. But imagine if we misunderstood it as behavioral. Okay, when the doctor comes around, I'm going to work really hard. I'm to cough and put some ice chips in my mouth so my fever looks like it's down. I'm going to work really hard. Now, if I do all those things and the doctor comes around and doesn't see my symptoms, maybe even have an older brother stand in front of me and examine him in my stead and write down what's going on with him in my book. (laughs) If I do any of that stuff, am I actually getting well? Or is my condition only getting worse? That's what Paul's talking about here. When you try to conform with works and, and efforts to obey the law as a remedy and a cure, your condition only gets worse. Because you can't cure the conditions of your own heart. Psalms 51. Yes, created me a clean heart, O oh God, renew a right spirit within me. So what was the problem that the Jews had with the law? They thought it could function as a cure. They thought if they kept the contract, if they did the law, they could get well spiritually. But it was only given to diagnose what was wrong. That was its purpose. Fourth paragraph. Thus Paul explains that he would not have known what it was to sin. Excuse me. Thus Paul explains he would not have known if it was a sin to covet without having been informed of that fact by the law. Sin is a violation of the revealed will of God. And where the revealed will of God is unknown, there is no awareness of sin. I'm going to pause right there. What do you think about the lesson's definition of sin? Sin is a violation of the revealed will of God. Can you find that definition in Scripture, anyone? I found two definitions that are very, very... And and one of you, you know, it's it's said all the time. 1 John 3, 4, sin is transgression of the law. Which means, as our class teaches it, sin is deviating from God's design law, how he built reality to operate, going out of harmony with it. That's what sin is. But Romans 14.23 also says, everything, this is a quote, everything does not come from faith is sin. Which means what? Remember, lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. And fear and selfishness result in acts of sin, behaviors. And so really both of them are talking about being out of harmony with the design laws about which God has created his universe to run upon, breaching his protocols. So the definition about violations of the revealed will of God, that almost sounds like it's right. In fact, most people wouldn't blink an eye at that. I I, I tend to blink my eyes at things. (laughs) But most people would go, that's right, that's right. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I'm going to tell you this is an idea. It comes out of authoritarianism. God said it. He's the dictator. He's the ruler. He's the sovereign. We have no question if you question him. Wendell? It is true. That is his will. His will is for us is that we be righteous. That we do the right thing for the right reason because we have a heart that is in tune with right. Well, I'm going to challenge this based on evidence. That sin is a violation of the revealed will of God. After the 70 years of captivity, what was God's revealed will for the children of Israel? 
return home and build that was revealed, revealed will. What did Esther and Mordecai do? Stay. Were they now in rebellion against God? They were not in his ideal. But were they in sin now? This is sin. I can't. All right, if you don't like that one, how about this one? What was God's revealed will, the revealed will of God, in regarding to whether Israel should have human kings? No. No. Thank you. Did God at some point come to change his will on this? No. He came to think that's a good idea for them to have kings. No. Who chose their first two kings? God did. Is he helping them sin? Yes. (laughs) Set us all up for that. You see, I have a problem with this definition. Yeah, absolutely. I have a problem with this definition. God does not participate in sin. As I understand your implication, I'm agreeing with you. But coming back to Mordecai, if Mordecai and Esther had gone with Israel back to Jerusalem, they would not have created the crisis between Mordecai and Haman. Potentially. I think Haman was a, was a bigot and a bias, and he would have been angry at them setting up their temple anyway and still hated the Jews and was anti-Semite and was going to go after them anyway. But And with Israel's kings, if Israel had stayed attuned to God and followed his will, they would have been in a better situation than they were. Oh, there's no question. No, no question about that. I, 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 of course I agree with that. My point simply was, and by the way, with Mordecai and Esther, um, one can make the argument, had they gone back, then the king of Persia wouldn't have had the opportunity to come to know God as he did through Esther. God has many ways we don't know about and so one could also make the argument, you know, so with the, with the kings, I think it's a very good one. It's a clear, I don't think God ever changed his will on that, but he helped them pick them. You see, this idea of the revealed will of God, how about this one? Did God come to Moses with his revealed will about what he was going to do with the children of Israel at the mountain? I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over with you. Was Moses sinning when he argued with God? No, God, no, far be it from you, take my name out of the book. You rebellious, sinful Moses, you're not going with my revealed will. How about when he came to talk to Abraham about Sodom? I'm going to wipe this city out. Abraham, this is my revealed will. I'm revealing my will to you, Abraham. Abraham was sinning when he argues with God. Far be it from you, Lord. Certainly the Lord of all the earth should do what is right. What? Are you questioning my revealed will? See, I I hate this definition. This comes from authoritarianism. It comes seeing God as a, 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 a Caesar. God invites our questions from a heart that really wants to know him and his ways. He doesn't want the blind, thoughtless, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. He wants us to do just like, who were the only two people in the Old Testament that God called his friends? Moses and Abraham. The two that argued and did not simply go, it's the revealed will, let's do it. As I understand it, mankind will be closer to God at the end of the great controversy than if they had never sinned. And yet, that God's will is not that they sin. But he, used, he has overpowered or overwrought things so that in the end, things will be better. But that's not to say that sin was ever good. Next comment, Rachel. We can make this practical because all of us have made mistakes. So let's just make up, say, suppose um, you are supposed to marry somebody, uh, that you, you are going to marry somebody that God has said, this person's not a Christian, you know, you shouldn't really marry them, and you do it anyway, okay? So, but then you are truly converted, 
And he asked the Lord to help me, help me live, to be a good wife, and to do the kinds of things that will help. And we all make mistakes. And God will then take that new circumstance and help us with that new circumstance. He does yeah. that all the time. And I think that is absolutely true. I don't think it's exactly what I was focusing on here. They're saying sin is, as uh, I'll read it again here. Sin is the violation of the revealed will of God. Did Abraham and Moses need to repent for opposing the revealed will? That's not a good definition. Okay. They were clearly opposing the revealed will, arguing against it. But of course they knew. And in fact, Moses was so committed against the revealed will, Moses was saying, I don't want to be in heaven with you if that's your revealed will. I I don't want a God like that. Exactly. So should Moses repent of that? Was that sin on Moses' part? Because he did not go along with the revealed God word. was so pleased that he went against Exactly my point. This is my point. This is a bad definition. The definition of sin is transgression of the law, which is stepping outside of God's designs, which is the principles of love and truth and freedom. These are the big ones. Love, truth, and freedom. And Moses knew God well enough, and I, and I think there was a larger reality going on. 1 Corinthians 4, 9, and we are a theater, a spectacle to angels, to men, and that God has foreknowledge, and he actually knew before he went there what Moses' response was going to be. And he said to the angels in heaven, hey, I know I just brought all these people out of Israel, and all this rebellion, and after all I've done, they're worshiping a golden calf, and I know you think that my, my methods are hopeless, and I should just use power against them, but let me show you. Remember Moses 40 years ago? Moses 40 years ago was a murderer. I've worked with Moses now for 40 years. Watch this, guys. Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you. No, Lord, no. I would give my life. I would rather die. I'll give my life for them. And he says, see, guys, my methods work. People who work with me, their hearts change, and they love others more than self. This is what was really happening there. The book of Job also. Yes. Yes. So uh, this definition, it puts us in this authoritarian, sovereign, thoughtless mindset with a God who will... Who are you to question me? It's not what he wants. John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, rather I call you friends. Because servants don't understand their master's business. He wants us to understand. So, uh, the next paragraph in the lesson talks about Christ being the fulfillment of the law. How did Christ fulfill the law? If you understand the law functions like human law, then what he did is he fulfilled it by paying the penalty that was due. He paid the penalty in full. All sins, past, present, and future from all peoples of all times and all places were placed upon Christ and punished completely in them, so he paid the full price. This is how he fulfilled the law. This is how it would be taught. Or, if you have the design law, he destroyed the deviation that leads us to fear and selfish drive and perfectly lived out the self-sacrificial principles of love, thus restoring God's design in the species human, in the humanity he took upon himself. Which view is more consistent with how reality works? Which view leads you to trust God more? Which view undermines your trust in God? God was punishing Jesus. If you don't get that payment, he'll punish you too. Jesus was fulfilling God's purpose to eliminate the cause of death in humanity and to restore the principles of life into humanity. That's what he was doing. Which, which view brings you to trust him more? Which view do you think Satan would support? Which is the most common view in the world today? Because we're running out of time, I want to skip ahead, and I just think it would be important to read, uh, I want to read from the Remedy, Romans seven fourteen through 20, because I think this is the, some of the part that I think people need to 
the conflict that we sometimes struggle with. We know that the law is consistent, reliable, and reasonable. But I am inconsistent, unreliable, and unreasonable because the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness has warped my mind and damaged my thinking. I am frustrated with what I do. For having been restored to trust, I want to do what is in harmony with God and his methods and principles. But I find that even though I trust God, my old habits, conditioned responses, preconceived ideas, and other remnants of the devastation caused by distrust and selfishness have, are not yet fully removed. And if I find an old habit causing me to behave in a way that I now find detestable, I affirm that the law is a very helpful tool revealing residual damage in need of healing. What is happening is this. I have come to trust God, and I desire to do His will. But old habits and conditioned responses, which present almost reflexively in certain situations, have not yet been totally eliminated, and thus cause me to do things I do not want to do. I know that my mind was completely infected with distrust, fear, and selfishness, which totally perverted all my desires and faculties, so that even when distrust has been eradicated and trust has been restored, the damage caused by years of distrustful and selfish behavior has not been fully healed. So I find that at times I have the desire to do what is right, but do not yet have the ability to carry out the desire. For old habits and conditioned responses are not the good I want to do. Oh no, they are the remnants of my selfish unconverted mind. So if I find myself doing what I no longer desire to do, it is not myself that acts, but the vestiges of old habits and conditioned responses that have yet to be removed. And through God's grace, they will soon be removed. So I will give you an example. When I was 19, I joined the military. As a 19-year-old, I went off and went to basic training. And I wasn't going to church, and I wasn't real into the church at that time. And I picked up a bad habit. Now, it wasn't as bad as some, but I let a few bad words slip into my language where I would say, and would have just this, this, a little extra coloring in my uh, the, the description of the things would come out here and there and everywhere. And I remember one time I was, uh, I think I was at home sitting around the table with mom and one of those words popped out <laughs> and, uh, and she looked hard, but I felt bad. And I realized, you know, I don't want to talk like that. And I came under conviction. I prayed about it. I said, Lord, I don't want to talk like that. Do you think that was the last time I said a bad word after having doing it for a while? No, there were times where certain situations reflexively it would just oh, and a bad word would pop out, and it took a while. And it, but when it did, I would go, oh, man, I don't want to talk like that. So my heart didn't want to talk that way, but I had a certain automated kind of conditioned response where I would sometimes have those words pop out, and it took a while for that neural net to rewire, and those words don't pop out anymore because they're not there anymore. It's been rewired. That's what I think is being talked about here. So my heart had already been changed, but my neural wiring had some catching up to do. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is love, who is goodness, who is truth, who presents truth to us and leaves us free and, and wins us with the evidence. Lord, we ask that your spirit of truth and love will come and transform our hearts to be like you and And as we have the new hearts and new desires, we ask for your empowering presence to give us the ability to to make the choices to live in harmony with your designs. And and when old habits and conditioned responses sometimes creep in and and we do the things that our hearts really don't want to do, help us to remember that that you have the ability to help free us from that and that we are not cast off or condemned by you when that happens. And it's really all about the motive of the heart. 
And we also want to remember again the families who were so negatively impacted by the tragedies in Texas and that your comforting presence will be with them and help them see your love through the dark days. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.